Jesus' name, amen. Baltimore football fans still grieve when they recall March the 28th, 1984. On a snowy night, the unthinkable happened. One of the NFL's most storied franchises, the Colts, snuck out of town in the middle of the night. The Colts were the team of football greats, John Unitas and Raymond Berry and Lenny Moore, as well as their legendary coach, Don Shula. Yet under the cover of darkness, Colts owner Robert Ursay hired the Mayflower Moving Company to clean out the team's offices and drive their equipment to Indianapolis. An NFL powerhouse skipped town. Ursay's clandestine operation to relocate his Colts was an attempt to avoid the negative firestorm that was coming from the Baltimore media. Ursay said, People of the press were hounding my family for two years, and I wasn't about to take any more hounding. Well, the Colts were dogged out of Baltimore. And in a sense, this is why Paul and his pals left Thessalonica. Paul spent just three weeks in the city, and his time there was extremely successful. Yet like the Colts, Paul left town to avoid a firestorm of hostility. Acts chapter 17 tells us the story. When Paul got to town, he went straight to the synagogue. And a few of the Jews believed. But the biggest inroads came among the Gentiles. Acts 17 verse 4 specifies, Not a few of the leading women were converted to Christ. Amazingly, the real housewives of Thessalonica came to faith in Jesus. Can you imagine? But this made the Jews jealous. They feared Paul's influence. They complained to the authorities. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They stirred up a mob to arrest Paul. When they couldn't find him, they arrested Paul's friend Jason. Well, Paul's time in Thessalonica was over before it had really begun. Secretly, he and Silas snuck out of town and moved down the road to Berea. In the days following, though Paul was run out of town, his heart kept coming back, running back to the Thessalonians. He had left behind a strong church. In a paltry three weeks, the powerful gospel had birthed a healthy church. Yet because of the brevity of his visit, there was much that Paul didn't get an opportunity to explain. He realized that he had left the believers ill-equipped. And so to shore up what was lacking, Paul sent his sidekicks, Timothy and Silas, back to Thessalonica while he sailed on to Athens. Six months later, Timothy and Silas will rejoin Paul, now in Corinth. And after they report on the welfare of the Thessalonians, Paul will write this letter. From Corinth, around the year 52 AD, Paul sits down and he pens a letter to this church that he knew only briefly, but he loved ever so deeply. And so chapter 1 begins, Paul, Silvanus, which is the Roman spelling for Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thessaloniki, as it's known today, is the second largest city on the island of Greece. It has a population of a million people, and it's one of the few biblical cities that have survived 
until modern times. In the first century, it was also an important Greek city. It's always had an excellent harbor. And it was originally named Therma for the area's hot springs. But perhaps its greatest advantage was its location. Thessaloniki is on the great Ignatian Way, the Roman road that linked Rome with the treasures of the east. It was said that Thessalonica lay in the lap of the Roman Empire. You know, it's amazing. This city had been steeped in paganism for 400 years. But after just three weeks of exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul wrote to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he greets them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Once a conversation occurred on a public bus, a woman was reading a Christian book. When the man next to her asked, what are you reading? She said, it's a book a friend gave me. She said it changed her life. Well, what's it about? It was obvious that she had just started to read the book, so she flipped to the table of contents and started reading off a few chapter titles. Discipleship, love, grace. Well, the stranger stopped her and asked him, what's grace? The lady replied, I don't know. I haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) And this is the problem with many Christians today. They've yet to grasp grace. That all God's blessings result from His unmerited favor. From a love we don't deserve. And grace is the fountainhead. All the Christian life flows from God's grace. It's not what you can earn. It's the heart of God and His love for you. This is why you'll never know the peace of God until you first receive the grace of God. And Paul writes, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul had just met the Thessalonians, but he was thankful for God's work among them, and he prayed for them zealously. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, In the sight of our God and Father. Thessalonica was a model church that had brought Paul great joy. Of course, there were other churches that troubled Paul. You remember the Corinthians? Oh boy, those Corinthians. They were the Christians gone wild. They were carnal and immoral. Paul referred to the Galatians, remember, as my dear idiots. They they were prone to legalism. And the Colossians, we just read about them. They were gullible to false doctrine. They were like a big mouth bass. They swallowed the lies, hook, line, and sinker. But these Thessalonians were a joy. Here Paul tells us that their devotion included faith and love and hope. He writes of their work of faith, their labor of love, and the patience of their hope. You know, real faith works. It acts on what it believes. Love labors. All our service to God should be motivated by our love for Him. As Paul said elsewhere, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. And hope, of course, perseveres. It endures the present stress with its eyes on the future glory. And then verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. You know, the Old Testament reserves the term beloved of God for special saints. 
Nehemiah 13 verse 26 refers to the wise King Solomon as the beloved of his God. But in the New Testament, even the rank and file believer achieves the same special status. All who are in Christ are considered special to God. Paul refers to us all as beloved brethren. And notice what makes this possible. Your election by God. God chose us. He selected the Thessalonians. Think of what this meant for Paul. He spent three weeks, just three weeks with these folks. That's not a long time by anybody's standards. My, it takes more time to grow tomatoes. Paul was hoping to grow mature Christians. Yet his confidence was not in his own efforts. He knew that God had a stake in these Thessalonians. That God had chosen them before the foundation of the world. That God had plans for them before they were even born. And God would complete his work among them. And this, was, this is what makes me so hopeful about you. You may be new to our church. You may be new to Christianity. Oh, it takes far more than a month to get a faith grounded and anchored. Oh, but like the Thessalonians of old, God is at work in you. God has chosen you. God considers you to be His project. And that's encouraging because God always finishes what He starts. That's my hope for you. And then in verse 5, Paul recalls his time in Thessalonica. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Miracles, boldness, the work of the Holy Spirit accompanied Paul's preaching. But notice, it wasn't, it wasn't the miracles that produced the great confidence in the gospel. In fact, Paul says that the gospel came in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. See, it was the character of the messengers that brought credibility to the message. And this is what's needed in today's church. Oh, sure, we'd love to see more miracles. But far more important are more men and pastors with integrity. There's a trouble, or there's a troubling disconnect in today's church. For some reason, we've separated the message from the messenger. We've got lots of characters today, just not much character. We've got pastors with bling. Integrity is not as sexy. Here's a major problem. Today's churchgoers are more attracted to ability than they are to righteousness. It's the entertaining speaker. It's the clever presenter. It's the celebrity spokesman that draws a large crowd that gets the attention rather than the faithful servant. That's tragic. Hey, just because you can attract a crowd and put some buns in the seat doesn't qualify you to lead. Paul hadn't been in Thessalonica for long, but for the time he was there, he had lived among the people. They witnessed his life firsthand, how he treated people and how he handled money and how he carried himself around town. Always remember the gospel of God's grace is truth regardless of who presents it, but it's easier to believe when the messenger is believable. Well, verse 6, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. And at first glance, that sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? Paul says, you became followers of us 
and of the Lord. But think this through. When a new believer comes to Christ, how much of the Bible does he or she know? Not much. A new believer's immediate influences come from the Christians around him. Whether we like it or not, people do follow us and the Lord. That's why we need to live godly lives. New Christians are watching. And having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Understand, the church in Thessalonica was a wartime baby. It was birthed spiritually in the midst of fierce persecution. You know, when angry Jews stormed the house where Paul was staying to arrest him, he wasn't there. And so they arrested the only Christians they could find. They charged Jason with aiding and abetting a criminal. Jason and the other Thessalonian believers were like the babies in London in World War II who were born in the midst of the bombings. They were wartime babies. And yet much affliction couldn't overshadow the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know, once a chef or a high government official resigned his post, he gave up a lucrative salary and a prestigious position. And when they asked him why, he said, Well, when dinner is good, no one ever praises me. And when it's bad, no one ever blames me. It's just not worthwhile. What he was saying is that whether praise or blame, at least he wanted to know that what he did mattered. And this is the cry of every human heart. This is what the Thessalonians had found in Christ. Yes, their faith had created some enemies, but at least their lives counted now. They no longer felt insignificant. The joy of the Lord filled their hearts. They mattered to God. The Thessalonians had even become an example to churches in other regions, to the Macedonians in Philippi, and to the Acacians in Corinth. Paul knew this firsthand since he was writing from Corinth in the region of Achaia. Well, verse 8, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Literally, from you, God's word has blown like a trumpet. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. You could say their witness had gone viral. Everybody knew about the Thessalonians. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Their lives spoke that their faith was legit. Does your life testify to the legitimacy of your faith? In fact, Paul thinks back to their conversion, verse 9. He says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now understand, the early Gentile Christians were saved from polytheism. The Romans and the Greeks before them had a pantheon of various gods and goddesses. And the great danger facing the early church was for people to think that they could simply add Jesus to their already long list of gods. This is why Paul makes it clear, to come to Christ you must turn to God from idols. Jesus demands top shelf. And idolatry is still a problem, even in modern times. See, we can turn anything, an item, an idea, an ideal, an identity, an ideology, into an idol. 
Anything you treat as all important is essentially an idol. Even good Christian parents indoctrinate their kids into idolatry when they elevate travel ball or schoolwork over worship. The same is true for us as for the Thessalonians. Coming to Christ is free, but you can't bring along a bag of other loves and competing loyalties. Salvation costs you only what you have to drop from your hand in order to grasp Jesus. Jesus refuses to be an add-on. Either he is Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. I like the statement, Jesus didn't come to take sides, he came to take over. (laughs) And it's true. Even today, we need to turn from our idols to serve the living and true God. And then verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus. Are you waiting on his son? Are you longing to see Jesus? I hope so. I am. When figure skater Nancy Kerrigan performed in the 1994 Olympics, her mother had to press her nose against the television screen to see her daughter skate. Nancy's mom was nearly blind. She could barely make out the elegant and beautiful lines of her daughter's magnificent skating. A news reporter asked her, what she could see. She said, well, I can see some shapes, some color, and some movement whenever she jumps. That's when Nancy's mom burst out in tears. She said, but I can't see her face. I can't see my daughter's face. And this is how I feel about Jesus. I can see his hand at work. I see the silhouette of his presence and his power. I see his movements, but I can't see his face. And this is why I'm waiting on God's Son from heaven. Because I really want to see Him face to face. And we're told Jesus is He who delivers us from the wrath to come. We'll get more into this next time. But this is one reason why I believe the rapture of the church precedes the great tribulation. For the Bible promises that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, chapter 2, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Paul's trip through Macedonia had been a wild ride. It was in Philippi that he was arrested and beaten and thrown in jail. And then he traveled 100 miles to Thessalonica, figuring the locals would be a little friendlier. The Greeks were, but not the Jews. They were fiercely opposed to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. And together, these Jews with some local businessmen, concerned about how Christianity was cutting into the idol-making business, the local idol-making business, they stirred up a riot that caused Paul to leave town. The United Idol Makers Union, Local 405, or something like that, realized that Christianity was going to put them out of work. Indeed, the gospel was being spread amidst much conflict. He says, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. 
Reminds me of the conversation between the motorist and the mechanic. Motorist, what will it cost me to repair my car? Mechanic, what's wrong with it? Motorist, I don't know. Mechanic, $289.95. When a mechanic knows the price before he knows the problem, there's trouble. Beware. But unlike a crooked mechanic, Paul never scammed anybody, he says. His ministry was sincere. It was without deceit. Verse 4, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, a wise man once said, I don't know the secret of success, but the key to failure is trying to please everybody. Try to please everybody and you'll actually please nobody. It's like radio stations. Imagine a radio station that played all genres of music. I mean, you turn it on and there's a polka song. Followed by some Metallica, heavy metal. And then next up is a rap by Jay-Z. And then a Carrie Underwood country. And then Frank Sinatra. And then Freebird. And then Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. What? I mean, who would listen to that? Cater to everybody and you'll please nobody. This is why God entrusted the gospel to Paul. Because his only desire was to please the Lord and be faithful to him. For neither at any time did we use flattering words. As you know. Paul didn't resort to flattery. told the truth. You know, when Mark Twain wrote his famous short story, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, He dedicated it to John Smith. On the credits page, Twain wrote, John Smith, who I have known in diverse and sundry places and whose many and manifold virtues did always command my esteem. Well, actually, Twain didn't have one John Smith in mind. He knew that John and Smith are the two most popular names in English. And if only the John Smiths bought his story, it would be a bestseller. And so he appealed to the human ego. And he wrote this flattering dedication. Flattery might sell a short story, but it has no place in communicating the gospel. In fact, the gospel isn't flattering at all. It starts out, you've sinned. We've all sinned. It slaps down our pride and offers us only mercy. Try to make the gospel palatable and tasteful, and you dilute it of its power. You cripple what it does. Sharing the gospel calls for straight shooting, not buttering up. Nor did Paul wear a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Paul wasn't out for people's money. He wasn't out to fleece the flock, but to feed the flock. Some of today's evangelists have one hand pressing the person's forehead and the other hand trying to pick their pocket. Paul continues to discuss his ministry, verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Hey, have you ever done something for God so you could brag about it later to your friends? Boy, I hope not. That should never be our motive. Paul's goal was to glorify God, not himself. Now realize who Paul was. He was an apostolic champion. Paul could have thrown his weight around and insisted on privileges. 
It was a first century custom for a church to provide a true apostle with free room and board. But Paul refused to exercise these rights. He says, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, we were gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Like a mother, Paul cared for his kids rather than expect his kids to care for him. This is the heart of a true pastor. The pastor exists for the people. The people don't exist for the pastor. Verse 8. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. Rather than ask the church for money, Paul supported himself financially with a secular job. So he wouldn't have to take money from them. This was a pastor willing to moonlight in order to spread the light. I like that. Paul continues, he says, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul pastored like a parent. And you know, the more I've done this, the more I know it's true that pastoring and parenting are very similar. He says, we exhorted and comforted and charged. Exhort means to correct. And at times a parent has to correct his child. At times a parent has to spank his little bottom. Comfort means to encourage. This is a pat on the child's back, and that's also the job of a parent, to encourage his child. And then charge means to challenge. And here is where a dad takes his child by the hand and leads him forward. He challenges him. He charges him. So here is where a dad should be. In his kid's face when he's wrong, by his kid's side when he's weak, and a step ahead of him when it's time to move forward. That's a good parent. And that also describes what a pastor does for his church. He exhorts and encourages and charges his flock. And then verse 13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when we received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. How could Paul have visited a city for a mere three weeks, hold a few Bible studies, then get run out of town on a rail, and yet still leave behind a growing, vibrant church? How can that happen? There's only one explanation. As Paul puts it, the Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Guys, God's Word works. The Bible believed changes lives. And Paul commends these Thessalonians for welcoming his testimony. He says, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. You know, it it takes two ingredients to complete a touchdown pass. It takes a pinpoint throw, and it takes a sure-handed catch. And so it is with our salvation. Paul was a great quarterback. He could pass on the gospel, but the Thessalonians were good receivers. 
And that's important too. By faith, they received the word of God. This is what unleashed the transforming power of the gospel. I hope you are a reliable receiver of God's word. And then verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. You know, times of persecution can create a sense of isolation. Oh, I'm the only one to which this has ever happened. Paul assures the Thessalonians that that wasn't the case. He points to the churches in Judea. He says, for you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. You know, whenever you think you've got it rough, remember that there's someone somewhere who's worse off. The Thessalonians had been persecuted now for three weeks. Paul reminds them that the Christians in Jerusalem and Judea had been hassled for 20 years. Years ago, I heard about a young man named Kyle Maynard. He played 11-year-old football for Collins Hill. Kyle was a defensive nose guard. But what made his participation so unique is that Kyle had no arms and no legs. He would crawl across the field on his nubs. I remember reading a quote from one of his teammates. Everyone has reasons to quit that aren't as good as his reasons to quit, and he doesn't quit. (laughs) Hey, when you think you've got it rough... When your family rejects you for your faith, or when your co-workers ridicule you, or when your boss rides you because of your Christianity, think of the believers in the world today who are behind bars, who are being tortured for their faith. You don't have it so bad after all. Paul says the Jews in Jerusalem not only crucified Jesus, but they persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. It wasn't enough that they killed Jesus, but now these Jews have tried to stop us from sharing him with the Gentiles. It's not anti-Semitic to say it. It's just true. That much of what the Jewish people have suffered through the ages is a result of their rejection of Jesus and their hostility toward the gospel of God's grace. Certainly when it comes to the cross, we're all culpable. Don't misunderstand. Who nailed Jesus to the cross? Well, it was the Jews and it was the Romans and it was even you and me. It was our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. We're all guilty. I'm not alleviating anyone of their responsibility But the Jews who rejected Jesus bear a particular degree of guilt. The awful cry of the Jewish hierarchy before Pilate still echoes down through the halls of history. Let him be crucified. His blood be on us and on our children. They had no idea what they were inviting. The Roman sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The inquisitions and expulsion of the Jews in the Middle Ages the pogroms of Eastern Europe, the Holocaust, even the terrible persecution that will come in the future great tribulation is part of God's response to that infamous request, His blood be on us and on our children. Paul realized 
that the wrath had come upon the Jews to the uttermost. God still loves his people, Israel, and we should too. But listen, listen now. But stubbornness comes with a steep price. Their stubbornness came with a steep price. And here's a warning to you. Pay attention, please. All stubbornness comes at a steep price. Verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Notice here Paul's awareness of the spiritual warfare raging around him. Here, a simple visit became a spiritual battle. Paul says, Satan hindered us. I wanted to come to see you, but Satan hindered us. And in a million ways, our enemy can engineer little distractions to keep us from visiting a friend in need or bowing to pray or getting our family to church. What we're tempted to chalk up as coincidence can be an attack. And then verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. There are five rewards in the New Testament that can be won by a Christian. All five are called crowns. You might want to jot these down. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24 speaks of the incorruptible crown. It goes to those who persevere in their faith. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8 awards the crown of righteousness to those who love the Lord's appearing. 1 Peter 5 verse 4 mentions a crown of glory given to a faithful pastor. And Revelation 2 verse 10 speaks of the crown of life, which is bestowed upon believers who endure persecution. And here, a crown of rejoicing goes to those Christians who are faithful witnesses. See, Paul's reward, his trophy in heaven is the presence of the Thessalonians. Not just Oscar, but Bob and Bill and Bev. Those were his trophies. Those were the folks that he won for Christ. Hey, before the throne of God, every face is going to be cocked toward Jesus. Jesus is our focal point. But at some point, Paul is going to peek out of the corner of his eye. And he's going to see the Thessalonians. And he's going to take great joy. For he knows that his witness had something to do with them being there. The Thessalonians are his hope, his joy, his crown. And i got to ask you, who is your crown? Who is your crown of rejoicing? Who is going to be in heaven because of your influence? In the movie Mr. Holland's Opus, Glenn Holland, he gives up his aspirations to compose his music in order to teach school and to feed his family. Well, at the end of his teaching career, on the day he retires, his students all return to thank him for his sacrificing to help shape their lives. One of his former students tells him, There is not a life in this room that isn't a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. 
We are the melodies and the notes of your opus. We are the music of your life. And this is how Paul felt about the Thessalonians and the people he had influenced for Jesus' sake. And this is our opus. It's the folks that we've touched with the gospel of grace. It's the people that we've influenced for Jesus' sake. This is why I need to ask you, who is the crown of your rejoicing? And in chapter 3, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Now it's interesting, whenever Paul heard of a church fighting false doctrine, he responded with a letter. But when the problem was persecution, he sent a leader, a person. Here he sends them his sidekick, Timothy. See, Paul realized that a sufferer needs more than information and data. They need a shoulder to lean on. They need some real flesh and blood interaction. We get strength to endure and persevere from the faith of other faithful believers. And note, Paul wasn't selfish here. Timothy's visit to the Thessalonians meant that Paul would be alone. Paul cared more about reaching out than huddling up. Guys, we need to remember, we'll spend forever with our friends. Today is our only opportunity to reach out to others. Timothy was sent to encourage the Thessalonians that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. You know, hey, if you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. Don't let it surprise you when it happens. He says, for in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And you know, even Jesus told us, in the world you will have tribulation. I love the observation. Jesus promised three things to his disciples. First, they would be ridiculously happy. Second, they would be completely fearless. And third, they would be in constant trouble. Well, Paul left Thessalonica because he was the flashpoint for the hostility. His departure did cool the tempers, but it didn't extinguish the opposition. He knew that persecution would continue to be directed toward the believers. And this is why he sends Timothy to check on the church. He writes in verse 5, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted, Concerning you by your faith. Timothy brought back a good report. Paul was encouraged to know the Thessalonians were continuing in their faith. If their faith had come off the rails, his evangelistic efforts would have been in vain. He's glad that that's not, that has not happened. He says, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. And remember, it's not enough just to have faith We need to stand fast in our faith. We need to continue in our faith and hold tightly to Jesus. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly 
that we may see your face and perfect, perfect what is lacking in your faith. What does a persecuted person need most? Prayer. And here Paul is praying night and day that he can visit soon and perfect what is lacking in their faith. Chapter 3 closes with a blessing. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. Paul prays for an increase. And I bet you're praying for an increase too. What do you want to increase? Well, my salary. Of course, I'm praying for an increase of my salary. Or for promotion. Or for... Wait a minute. Paul says pray for an increase of love for one another. Don't pray for a bigger nest egg necessarily. Pray for a bigger heart. Make that the top, li- top priority on your prayer list. This is a frequent prayer of mine. I grew up around religious folks who had a closed mind and a small heart. This is why I always pray for an open mind and a big heart. Our God is big hearted. I won't be like Him. And then verse 13. So that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. You'll notice each chapter in 1 Thessalonians closes with a verse referring to the return of Jesus. The New Testament speaks more of His second coming than almost any other subject. And that's what Paul will elaborate on in chapter 4, 